Welcome to The Hidden Truth, Breaking the Silence. I'm your host, Jonathan McLernan. Each episode, we explore stories of individuals and how they've been affected by being a part of a secretive Christian fellowship. The stories shared here may include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Dysfunction happens when doctrine meets dogma and silence is paramount. So let's pull back the veil on today's episode of The Hidden Truth. All right, welcome back to the show. I am always excited. And again, it seems weird to say that I'm excited when I get to talk to somebody about some of the things we're going to talk about today. But I'm excited because what it really means is this a this is a positive movement that is, that is affecting people's lives in a way that should have been happening many, many years ago, but it's taken whatever has happened in the last year to bring this to fruition. And so today we're going to talk with Lauren Rose and uh, about her work with Advocates for the Truth and her experience as well. So Lauren, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So kind of before we dive into that, what is your your connection to the fellowship? Yeah, so I, let's see, on my maternal side, my great-great-grandparents found meetings in the in the hills of Colorado on their honeymoon in the 20s. And uh, so they spent their honeymoon reading the Bible and and that was sort of <laughs> that was sort of their that's the like the bridge version shortened version of of the story but basically i come from family in california and arizona that are very very um highly regarded amongst the community especially my maternal side like very okay. high values you know they dress speak appropriately or are very well liked etc um i'm on my paternal side it's interesting because uh, um, in the paternal side, the family, the women are actually educated, which is kind of rare, at least because my maternal mm-hmm. side, no one went to college, all of that. So I very much right. grew up with my mother being like, you know, you're going to be either a wife or a worker. And those are the two paths in life. My my grandmother <laughs> uh, is actually a, an amazing pianist. And so I started taking piano lessons. And that was kind of my my escape from from normal life i could you know play classical music right. and that kind of thing and so i was allowed to play hymns you know all of that but we uh let's see we went to everything we went to gospel meetings you know we'd drive hours if there was a meeting in another place we'd have workers meetings at our homes we'd have gospel meetings we would go to every convention we could for holidays like that was sort of that's the house that I grew up in and having a, having a father who was a worker also sort of meant he was a little bit of like a, I don't know if calling him a celebrity is the proper word, but he sort of was like well-known and he always spoke longer than everyone else in the meetings. And so he, uh, he was just one of those figures, you know? So I grew up, it's like, yeah, I mean, you have Bible study before you go to, to school and you know, you don't, Right. You don't play the piano on Sundays, you know, I mean, just that kind of stuff. So very much, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. very much grew in that kind of up in that kind of environment. Right. So you were like deeply, deeply steeped in this kind of stuff. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, admittedly, my mind, when you told, you said about your uh, great grandparents, like <laughs> finding it in the hills of Colorado, I was like, wow, I feel like I'm trying to picture what it would be like, you know, it's hard to imagine a world without the internet, maybe without even phones and things like that. And you encounter like these, I think back then they might even call them like these tramp preachers, you know, talking yeah. about the gospel. And it would have been like a totally novel experience based on like, prior history which was like you go to a church you have a preacher and so on and you meet this and it'd be like whoa this is this is different 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and I think, you know, from both maternal and paternal sides, it's like a lot of like agrarian agriculture type families where mm-hmm. they were in the middle of nowhere and they didn't have anything. And so when this happened mm-hmm. or when this came to them, it was like, oh, wow, it's a lot of like the Great Depression era. So for them, it, it was sort of meaningful because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's free. I can attend for free. I can read the Bible. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a sense of like community, yeah. like potlucks, all of that stuff. And so it became. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My my maternal family really met, very much became like the some one of the families of Southern California that was very well known mm-hmm. for like hosting young people's get-togethers and oh right all of those types of things are sort of like you know good good stock I guess yeah. you could say <laughs> yeah uh, I, I I don't want to say I was, I was the opposite but like we we lived in a small town where there weren't a lot of a lot of friends so we didn't actually get as nearly as much socialization in amongst uh, professing young people as probably others in like the cities would have. And yeah, I didn't even have any real friends in the meetings, like growing up mm-hmm. per se. I had people that I knew that I could sort of shake hands with. But, oh man, I remember gospel meetings being like super awkward, especially like as like a 10 or 11 year old, you're just going through that really weird sort of stage of life. And, and, and whatnot. It's like, oh, I'm going to just awkwardly stand around and see. And, and the dear old people would like come and shake my hand and like feel sorry for me. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's that's fascinating in a sense to be sort of steeped in that and you you seem to have quite a good understanding of like the the history of it and of course you have like these deep roots with within it and maybe this kind of leads into some of what we're going to talk about today but i i, I think about how maybe what your grand or great grandparents would have like encountered versus like what we see now and it seems like what they encountered and what this has become are, are kind of almost like two different things. I don't know if that's an accurate statement, but what would your perspective on that be? I would have to say I disagree because I think at the heart of this is this sort of two by two. And again, I didn't ever know that that com- that comment or that terminology until much later in life. The internet was not a part, a big part of my childhood. Like I did not. <laughs> right, right. I didn't, you know, we didn't have TV, none of those things. So growing up, it's like I went to the library and checked out books. But the, I feel like the ministry is at the heart of this and the hierarchy and the sort of purity, the evangelizing of that. And they stay in your homes. You know, I really bought mm-hmm. into that hook, line, and sinker like, this is the one true way. And, right, yeah. You know, I'd say probably from like zero to like eight or nine, I kind of was like internally like, God, are you talking to me? What's going on? Then I professed, um, was baptized at 14. And then I would, I would like carry my Bible to school. Right. And the longer the dress, the, the higher to God, you know, the closer to God kind of, you know, I mean, like I, yeah. I definitely like, carry, your, carry your Bible to school. Like, oh yeah. I mean, I did the whole, I did the whole thing. Um, I would, I was definitely one of those people who would chastise even internally, like, oh, I can't believe they're wearing like that short of a skirt, or I can't believe, yeah, yeah, you know, their hair is short. I had never cut my hair, um, so I had hair down past my knees. I, I, yeah, I mean, wow. if you, you kind of be quite a sight. <laughs> it was not fun, <laughs> let me tell you, for a, a myriad of reasons. But it was. Like, it seems like it'd be really heavy. I was terribly happy, yes, but I also yeah. thought that was like that was the requirement in which to like mm-hmm. get to heaven. And this was the place, this is the only thing I could do to sort of yeah, yeah. live out my values and show the world that I was one of God's chosen people. Right. Cause I feel like th- this kind of emerged at a time where uh, I don't know if like puritanical, like 
beliefs in and around the time that it was it was coming to fruition were were really strong, and then this fellowship really glommed onto those and held onto those where other other uh, religious denominations may have kind of evolved with the times and recognized that okay, uh, maybe we've misinterpreted some of these things or so on. But this fellowship really stuck to those Victorian era kind of ideals, and so. I'm still flabbergasted that you like carried your Bible to school. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I was, I was what you would call like definitely a strange, quiet weirdo. You know, some of my friends that grew up with me are like, you're such a strange <laughs> person. But for me, it was sort of like, I felt like that was the requirement, right? That's the standard mm. you have to live up to it. And it was also what was required of by my parents. So Right. You know, we weren't allowed to wear pants to do things. We weren't allowed to, you know, I guess, socialize with the outside world. We weren't allowed to, you know, I mean, you name it. It was like we sort of held the standard in the community and were known to hold the standard. Be like, oh, I like other kids would be like, oh, I look up to you. Right. That was kind of like, oh, I look up to you inside the community. So I'm like hearing the phrase standard bearer, which just historically speaking for those who might not know standard isn't just a, it's actually a reference to like i believe a person in, in like a medieval battle formation who would actually carry a flag to indicate like what a formation was to do so this idea of a standard bearer is actually like someone who carried a flag but i think with this nebulous idea of the standard what it is and yeah very very like steeped in yeah and especially for women like like again like my wife and i probably fit into the black sheep category a little bit here but like i just see and and but she was raised fairly strictly as well like pretty pretty hard line like whereas i think uh my parents i i felt like they were strict but now i i listen to other people's stories and i realize like they were actually like they they picked like they were strict on some things but other things they're like you know what you're gonna have to figure this one out and they kind of gave us the latitude to do that wow which is really fascinating very interesting so you had this kind of yeah, you just sort of backdrop. And then and it's funny because I, I don't see you as weird at all. Like, that's a funny way to describe yourself. I'm like, you're a fascinating, like super intriguing person. And I think probably a great storyteller. And uh, like, there's there's so many like interesting aspects to that. But at some point in time in, in your mind, you're, you're going, hang on a sec. All of this that I'm like, because that sounds exhausting to like put all of that into like looking a certain way and like doing all these things. Like I just, I feel exhausted just hearing like you describe everything that was like being put into this. So at some point something would click in your brain and you go, I don't know about this. How did you feel like the first time like kind of like questions started coming into your mind? So my piano teacher in high school actually encouraged my parents. She was like, you know, Lauren should apply for a scholarship. And for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. they convinced, she convinced my parents that I I could apply for a scholarship. I ended up getting the scholarship in Arizona for piano accompaniment scholarship. And they were like, oh, this is, you know, if you go to college, you're 17. If you go to college, you can do this while you have babies and like get married, or you can become a worker and like play for, you know, I mean, this was the, this was the mindset, right? So it was like, okay, And the scholarship required that I lived on campus. So I mm-hmm. felt a compounding pressure definitely to leave home, but also I had two siblings still at home. So by the time I left at 17, you're still underage. Like, you know, I couldn't, it's like, you can't sign for yourself in certain things. Right, right. But that whole year living with a roommate who actually happened to be this extremely, really, really kind, ginger haired, um, <laughs> adorable, christian girl yeah and she told me about all of this 
community service she had done. She would, she would like just embodied all of these things that I thought to myself, I was like, well, this is strange. Like her external doesn't appear anything remote to mine, but like her actual actions and behavior is so different than what I've thought this to be. So there began to be that like reflection up against me, you know, we're sleeping in the same room and and that kind of thing. And she was super kind. So that expanded my worldview. And during that time, somewhere along my freshman year, I started reading a bunch of religious texts and, and sort of started, you know, I always was a voracious reader. And so I began thinking to myself, like, you know what, I don't want to become a wife or a worker. Like, this is not, Mm -hmm. this is not, (laughs) this is not for me. Like, I'm not that person, please no. So that for me felt like a real descent from, from what I was supposed to do. And so by the time I got home on Christmas break, uh, my freshman year, I was still 17. Um, my mom was like, there's something wrong with you. Your spirit is gone. Like, and I still appeared the same way. You know, I mean, the whole, the whole nine yards. So they could tell something was evolving within me, even though I wasn't verbally saying it. Right. Mm-hmm. By the time I got home in the summer of after I turned 18 and was home for a couple of weeks, that was sort of began for me. I, I started reading this book, which I know is probably a little <laughs> conflicting, but, uh, Stephen Hassan, he wrote, uh, it's something about combating cult mind control, right? Okay, yeah. I don't know why I picked this book up. I don't even know like what brought me to this book or or what happened. But I found it at a secondhand bookstore, and I recognized elements of of control and mindset that I had within myself. So, you know, even when I'd be learning a Mozart piece or something, I'd be like, okay, well, I have a hymn stuck in my head. Like, why is that, you know, just like sort of obsession versus like, you know, what I'm wanting to focus on all these different things. So I started putting these pieces together and that book became like a constant companion for me. And through that experience, by the end of the summer, I had told my family, like, you know, I am not really sure. I don't really want to do this. And by the fall of my sophomore year, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to meetings anymore. And they, it did not go over well. Let's just say that, you know I mean? For them, for them, and especially like in terms of the family in which I grew up in is like, if you leave the community, right. It's like, you have, it's blasphemous. It's worse than an infidel, right? Like you have turned down the only way to heaven. To, to sort of illustrate, I think, how difficult it is, like, everybody now looks at you differently because you are breaking free from the one true way and now you're bound for hell. But not only that, you might be a nefarious influence that could take other people away from this. Did you experience any kind of, like, shunning in that capacity? So I did. So one of the things that uh, my parents did was take my photos off the wall and they were like, we're not going to let your siblings see you, which was really, really painful for me um, because I was very close to both of them. But that for me was a way also that sort of like helped break free slightly because I was, there was such extreme shunning. The workers Mm -hmm. actually held the workers held a meeting, Jay Wicks and Mike Summers held a meeting, a young people's meeting for the doubting, like people that were troubled about their faith. It was directly for me. Like my parents actually had asked. Like actually an intervention, it. basically. <laughs> so they showed up and it was like a young people's meeting in a basement. Very awkward. My sister was there. She was mortified because she's like, oh my goodness, like we all know what's going on. We all know this is about Lauren. Why is she <laughs> causing right. a scene? And I brought a list of questions. 
like that I had written down and they, mm-hmm. they just kept being like, Oh, you have to have faith. This is God's way, you know, all of this sort of thing. And by the end of it, that was like the last big public event that I went to mm-hmm. in my teens because I was just like, I'm done. I'm out of here. And I lost when, when I actually left the community, I lost all of my friends. I even had friends write me letters and emails saying like, I actually have zero desire to be your friend because the devil's gotten you. And like, you know, you have a bad spirit. And so I really experienced more of like that heightened fall. And again, you know, at the time it was, yeah, at the time it was very, and even going through it in the moment, it's just like very, very internally painful because of the isolation, right? Is that Mm. you communally lose that it's, it's such a conditional experience. And again, like, you know, people have vast experiences through this, but like if your family is more looked at, or at least the way it was, you know, 18 years ago, it was very much like, oh my goodness, what have you done? You know? (laughs) And from that, it kind of in a way set me free also so that I could just explore the world from there. Yeah. Fair enough. That's, that's quite a fascinating backdrop. Um, And thank you for, for sharing all of that. I think it's, for me, you know, as you know, I'm still a part of the fellowship and it's super interesting to hear what other people's experiences are. Like some people listening, you might've heard me like audibly gasp sometimes as I'm listening to your experience. Cause I'm like, wow, that feels like really extreme, you know, uh, like far beyond sort of the level of strictness that I experienced. And, and I felt like, like I said, my upbringing was fairly reasonably strict, but now I'm like, oh, wow, it was probably not nearly as strict as I imagine when I'm listening to what other people were, are, are describing here. And so the, it's it, like in the term cult kind of gets thrown around. And, and I know for a lot of people inside the fellowship, it's really like offensive to hear that word. But I think partly because people don't like the thought of like, am I a part of it? Like, have I been like mind controlled or have I somehow been manipulated or, 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 or things like that? And so to then start going down that road and looking at, well, there are, there are aspects of it that are, that are kind of troubling. Like this idea of, you mentioned the word like spirit or spirit letter, your spirit is wrong and things like that. And it's kind of this nebulous, sometimes there feels like this nebulous thing. It's hard to pin down when somebody would say that to you, but and it's really unsettling or maybe it wasn't your experience. really unsettling. Like, Oh, yeah. you, you, you have like a wrong spirit. And you're like, what? I'm just trying to figure stuff out. Cause, and I'm, I, I'm not even sure where you stand in terms of belief in God or not, but I think to myself, like God's not actually afraid of our questions. Mm. Why would we, why would we be afraid to ask questions like, Hey, I don't understand this. And this doesn't seem like this lines up with what I, you know, read in the Bible or things like that. Like, why would we ever be afraid to ask questions? But it sounds like this was like, you really got answers that were (laughs) to say unsatisfying is like the understatement of the year. So now you go on this journey and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to spread my wings, going to fly, do my thing. Um, one, I'm like, side note, I'm like, man, it'd be cool to listen to you play sometime. Like, do you have a favorite? Total side note, do you have a favorite like classical piece that you enjoy playing? Uh Rachmaninoff is my favorite. So that would be like that that's probably my favorite composer. Okay. To, you know. Could yeah. could I ask? And I'm, this is this is a bit of a side note. We'll we'll come back to the main topic, but now I'm just curious, what is it about Rachmaninoff? You know, cuz pe- people often think like Beethoven was the greatest and there's Mozart. Maybe some people very people maybe even know like Brahms or um Joseph Haydn, who I thought was really interesting. Right. He has he had one called Surprise that I really liked, but um uh, what is it about Rachmaninoff's work that you you enjoy the most? One, he had rather large hands, and I have very big hands, so that okay. big awk, like those large reaches, are impressive. And also, there's like some sort of like Russian pessimism, the era in which era in which he was like from. I just I don't know. There's something about like the melancholy 
and mm. the immensity and magnitude of the emotions that he's able to portray. I mean, of course, like there's Chopin, there's so many great, I mean, there's so many other great ones, but mm. Rachmanina for me was always like the place where I could put things that I couldn't verbalize as a child yeah. or teen, I guess rather. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. That's really beautiful. I actually think like that's kind of the connection you made to the music. I, I, I certainly have an affinity for music because may, may have slipped out here. I, <laughs> as well um music is is amazing because it is a way to put uh, like sound or expression to something we may not have the words to do so to feel it like that um yeah i I have like piano fingers i would call them uh so that's amazing uh, yeah it's great yes celebrate and and kind of enjoy that so so now you have the scholarship and you're able to kind of explore uh, did you do any like performing or things like that or once you were kind of free from under sort of this control where did your life kind of take you <laughs> I'm not sure this is uh, going to be great for your podcast, but yeah, there's a uh, there's all sorts of I've I feel like I've I've lived like a hundred lives between mm. I don't know. I, so let's see, being on my own, being on scholarship for piano is pretty arduous and long and exhausting, and like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not it's not glamorous. And so I worked many odd jobs for college, and by my junior year, I was like I can't sustain. So one of my friends had the bright idea for me to be a stripper. Okay. So I spent my junior and part of my senior year of college doing that at night. Okay. And that was actually where I learned the most about performing, which was like a wild experience. Um, And through that process, you know, like cutting my hair, doing all these things. And then by my senior year, my sister and I both got pregnant. Like I kept mine hidden and my sister kept hers was, was public about hers. And so, um, I was, I like was very secretive about that. I didn't tell anyone and had the baby and gave him up for adoption. So there's my, at uh, the other part of the journey and, and sort of tried from, you know, 21 to probably like 28 really tried to repair like this massive rupture that I had with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my family of just like trying to like reconnect, you know, yes, I'm outside, but I want to make it work. Yes, I'm outside and I want your love, you know, like that constant right, yeah. primal need and and whatnot. Yeah. So, and, and as you're trying to re- repair this and um, I, would, it, would it be presumptuous of me to say like, it probably didn't go as you had hoped? <laughs> well, I think there were, there were definitely moments where, there were constant attempts or like it would feel like, okay, maybe this is working, but there was always this undercurrent of so much of the other like childhood abuse and things that had gone on. So that was unspoken. Mm -hmm. And so me and my siblings, you know, it it was really complicated in so many different ways, but I feel like that for most of my twenties, it was like a little bit of like a regression is like, I just wanted that approval and love from them so badly. Like I would constantly show up at Christmas and be like, Hey, I brought gifts for everyone. And like, let me, you know, mm-hmm. let me overdo it and try and make up for the lack that this big divide that's between us, which mm-hmm. is like this religious, religious and sort of moral barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and at that point, um, would your view, I mean, I'm going to, obviously your views around spirituality were, were evolving, but uh, I guess if I could ask like kind of where, where did that take you at that point? Like, do you, did you still identify as a Christian? Did you still believe in God or were you kind of like putting all of that aside? Well, for me, you know, so much of my psyche was 
developed and sort of sort of um, under the the dictatorship of this idea of like a white male god who is oppressive and abusive. So mm-hmm. like getting out of that from my teens was more of like I want nothing to do with any religion. Mm-hmm. I admire people who who find solace in that, but I'd only found. I'd really only found a lot of suffering and Mm -hmm. a lot of um, shame, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of negative underbelly kind of emotions that kept me locked in, which again, at the time I didn't know were also part of like PTSD and whatnot, but you know, it was like that underbelly was really the, like the, the interior culture of like my childhood and like this being like some white dude is watching me, you know, not just like my parents. It's just like, Oh, this oppressive character. So when I got to college, started reading all these texts, I sort of more for a while was just like ambivalent, open, like people can do what they want. Um, I, I can, you know, I can see the, I can see all the, the different perspectives. And yet I don't feel like I necessarily I don't prescribe to the whole like white God in the sky kind of idea, right? Like it just mm-hmm. doesn't work for me. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. you might want to edit that part out Not for your, your listeners, but this, this, but this I, shouldn't uh, hurt anybody's feelings to hear, hear any, any of these things, right? We should be free to have these conversations. But I think that, you know, in terms of, in terms of belief or a higher power or whatever, it's like, I've always found through, through art, through humanity, through, through the medium of like communication and particular ways, nature, right. Is another one where there is something much greater outside of ourselves. And also we have the potential internally to do really a lot of great things. Right. So I believe in humanity at its core. And I also, that also is an Achilles heel for me, right. Is cause I can just be like, Oh, look at mm-hmm. all this other stuff and not the, not the black and the white part of it. So I spent a lot of my twenties just kind of like staying in that area of things. I've explored Buddhism for a while. I've done like years and years Mm -hmm. of meditation practice. So, I mean, I've kind of, I've kind of dabbled, but never aside from stepping into churches, like when I'm on a, you know, walking Paris or something, I like, I have no desire to yeah belong to something. Uh, Kind of along the way, this is interspersed with your own kind of personal healing journey as well. So there's other sort of complex sort of mitigating factors that you're, you're trying to navigate. And, and thank you for sharing your backstory. I'm like, man, (laughs) there's a lot of fascinating things I would love to explore. That'd be super fun. But um, so we'll shift gears kind of a little bit here because at some point in time, this led to you crossing paths with uh, Sherry and Sherry, who is, you can hear in, in the um, episode one of this series here, um, she, she was interviewed and she shares her story and y- your path crossed with hers. How, how did that uh, come about where you and Sherry encountered and started having a conversation? Yeah. So in 2019, my sister, I had had temporary, like sort of not guardianship, but some sort of like temporary non-court appointed custody of her children for several months. And so she brought me a letter and the letter was a redacted form of Sherry's letter that she had written about my father. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big shock because she, I was like, well, how do you know this is him? How do you, who is this person? She's like, I don't know. I just know this is him because of the song that's mentioned in there is one of the songs that he used on us, which also is not like a core memory for me. Mm -hmm. So that was also particularly like strange. And so I, 
spent the, the following like five, six months sort of scouring the internet. I'm mm. not really a social media fan, but I, I, I went did that whole rabbit hole thing and I found her. And then it was one of the most pivotal phone calls of my life is realizing like, oh, wow, this person is a survivor of Steve, my father. Mm-hmm. And that everyone had known, um, and, you know, aunts, uncles, workers, elder, like everyone had known in the community growing up and no one had told me or mentioned it. And that was, I think that there's still moments like I've, I've come to terms with it, but it was definitely a big mm. shock to receive. Yeah. You know, no kidding. In terms of like, Oh, you know, I'm like, and I, like I'm like 30 years old and what is going on? Like who is this person? You know what I mean? Having, having a, a reflection and the story outside of your own experience is just, it's utterly bizarre to be like, Oh, this is not, it's just very, very surreal. Right. To, to even like come to terms with the, the realization that this individual who has been loomed large in your life as a figure, that there's this other, other aspect to this individual that you were, to some degree un- unaware of, which is that in itself is like a big, big thing to process. And so you, you end up having this conversation with, with Sherry about this experience. And that kind of leads into the, you know, almost like you're, you're now maybe whether you wanted to or not, like getting a reconnection to the fellowship that you had kind of like maybe put behind you and in the weirdest or, or, or most difficult kind of terms. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange because throughout my 20s, I maybe had contact with like one or two people I had grown up with. One uh, fellow in particular, he had he had left the community. But for the most part, like I didn't I don't have any sustained relationships from the community. You know, I I mm-hmm. lost a lot of contact, you know, and when I'd see relatives at events or or you know, family gatherings, if I were to be invited, it'd be like, oh, wow, look at your hair. Like, oh, you've changed so much. You know, like the whole nine yards. <laughs> uh, like, let's go straight to the appearance. You know, like buckle up and like go in and just deal with deal with what it is. Uh, so, yeah. So then t- meeting Sherry, meeting Sherry or actually talking to her for the first time and then my sister talking to her as well really reinforced a lot of the awareness that inside of our like sort of really small existence as children there Mm -hmm. was so much that we did not know about and these layers and layers of stories that had existed that had not been told collectively right like you you know you think like okay i know all the family stories i know where my family comes from i know about the colorado stuff i know you know i know the fargo north dakota stuff i know you know the montana stories like i know all of those things and then to not know this big big piece Mm -hmm. of your own history i found out that my mom was actually pregnant with me when she found out about Sherry and she was, you know, 21 years old. So that gives you perspective. Like this is her second child. So it was like putting these pieces together was like, Oh wow. Like my mom was expecting me when she found out all of this news. Right. It's bizarre. Yeah. And then this is like a hallmark uh, of this, this fellowship is, and that's why I've titled this, this series, like the hidden truth. Like there's, these layers that like we heard whispers about, you know, there was this thing that happened over there, but we don't talk about that. Or this thing that happened over here and we, we don't talk about that. And then when people learn about it, they're absolutely stunned. The the cognitive dissonance that they experience is like, it's, it's incredibly hard to sort of reconcile this stuff. And so as, as you and Sherry started talking and realizing, obviously you have this, this common connection, what sort of prompted you to realize, okay, we need to take some action here. Like there's something that we need to 
do? So before I'd actually spoken to Sherry, like reading the letter, I actually had written a letter to all of my family, both maternal and paternal sides, aunts, uncles, cousins, everything saying like, Hey, you know, my father's a pedophile. You guys know this, you've known this, how come no one told me? And like, just letting you know, like there will be mayhem if this is not dealt with, right? Like, you know, it will, it will be public. Like, I don't even know why (laughs) this is very threatening, but I was just like, so I was so outraged and livid at that point (laughs) that no one had spoken of this. And then when, when I started speaking to each family member slowly, little by little, is that the ostracizing being cut off being, you know, the, the victim shaming and blaming the sort of like, Oh, you know, the, the way that the narrative towards Sherry was like the horrible things that were said. It's like that only reinforced the sort of disease or lack of a better word of like within this small, like family mm-hmm. community, right. That I had grown up in. And so I thought, started thinking like, this is bizarre. Yeah. So in 2021, I wanted to go meet Sherry, went to Texas, sat out in her, her uh, barn for several hours. And I was like, look, you know, I know I can't ever make things right, but I want to sit here and hear your story on behalf of, of all of the people I come from and apologize if you want to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. So we sort of mm-hmm. created this, allowed this friendship, you know, two women very distinct worlds apart, you know, like flew in from New York and and she's, uh, you know, she's like on a cattle ranch and we're both sitting there and I'm like, this is, this is utterly bizarre. And, and yet at the same time, it feels like, you know, it it feels when you meet a fellow survivor that there is some, there's a point of recognition, especially when you have the same perpetrators. Mm -hmm. And that was wild to me. It's just to be like, and to hear how many people distinctly knew and how many workers knew for me was just, I think that was almost more shocking than coming to terms with the other part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that like has really angered me most about this whole situation is the absolute secrecy around it. And this sort of this urge to, to preserve the image of something that's hollow in the inside is literally like for a scriptural reference, like Jesus talked about a whited sepulcher, like painted white on the outside to look good. And the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. And I'm like, this is what we're talking about here. People, people are so concerned about the outside looking nice and white and clean. And the inside is, is there's so much raw and as you described it as disease. And so you're, you're meeting Sherry. And I, I mean, I, I just love that because I obviously know some of your backstory that we won't discuss here, but I love that you wanted to sit down with her and say, I want to hear your story. I want, so that you can feel heard and validated and in in the presence of another human being, because there's something so powerful about having just one person who will say, I believe you, I hear you. It's so powerful. Well, and I also think that communally that adequate healing cannot begin unless you have that. And that's that layer of, again, like going back to the complicity piece. When I called my mother before I had talked to Sherry, I said, how could you not tell me this? And she said, she said to me, I'll never forget. She said, what does this have to do with you? Why do you need to know this? Those were her words. And that for me was like, well, the act of, I believe the act of telling a story has the power to revolutionize an audience, right? Has the power to Mm -hmm. anger people, has the power to wake people Mm -hmm. up. I think that storytelling is one of the most, I mean, it's our primal 
sort of like basis and right is gathering around a campfire and telling a story, right? It's like, that's what, that's what we do as humans. Before we had like papyrus and ink wells, <laughs> we had stories. Stories are sticky, right? Like they, they, it's literally how historical stuff was passed down generation to generation. It's, it's like in us, we're wired for this as human beings to, to hear and to receive that storytelling is Im- immensely important. When we think about, cause we're, we're talking about complicity here and what what do you see about this fellowship that and maybe this is this is like a Pandora's box, but but like really that that leads to such a culture of like complicity, secrecy, and and silence? Well, I think when when our shame that we carry around our humanity and our own experiences outweighs our our need and desire to connect, then I think this it's problematic at its core, right? It's like, if I think mm-hmm. that this story could somehow invalidate myself or invalidate others and like cause them to lose out or cause them to go to a lost eternity, it's like, well, this there's no higher stakes, right? If you, if you're like, Oh yeah, like don't tell that one. Mm, right. Yeah, um, and yeah. then also this act of complicity, like, you know, you look in history and, and I, I love this. I love this story. It's actually uh, very co- commonly known, but the Harriet Tubman, you know, when she left and brought her family out of slavery, mm. her half of her family went back halfway through. They were like, actually, we're going to go back to slavery. And, and that's why they called her Moses, because after that first trip, she was like, no, no, no. If you leave with me, you're not going back. And I think that that is part of what this this whole experience is requiring of the church is to not go back to what they were and what they did and being complicit is like you know Mm -hmm. i know these are extreme examples but it's like this is how i feel about it with child sex abuse is it's like okay so maybe you're not the person locking people into uh, you know the holocaust like in that experience but if you're the person cleaning the toilets you're complicit Mm -hmm. If you're not, if you're enabling harm to be caused, mm-hmm. so this is the problem, right? It's people are like, well, I'm not doing anything. And it's like, that's exactly what complicity is. It's just, right. it's like complicated, right? So you think like, well, I'm not doing anything, but I tell people, I'm like, if you went to convention this year, that's complicity. Yeah. If you pay, if you gave the workers money, if you are not like boycotting, if you are not yeah. reimagining things radically and drastically, if you're not standing up for survivors, if you are not willing to pay the price of what true, you know, for lack of a better word, like repentance or sort of like, Mm -hmm. you know, reparations looks like this community has, the whole community has to pay this, this price, not just the perpetrators. Like it blows my mind that somebody could say, could identify as like a Christian and want to turn a blind eye to the cries of survivors and, you know, I, I mean, I, I study behavioral psychology and, and so I, I look at it and it's like, I have this saying that all behavior makes sense. And I kind of start with that lens and I try to understand, okay, why is like, what is it about this institution that is causing people? And we've kind of described it a little bit to, to turn a blind eye. And it's this fear that if I, if I acknowledge this, like one of two things is probably going to happen. One, my salvation could be at risk. And two, like, my sense of identity, like I, I listened, you know, go back to like your upbringing, how deeply steeped you were in this. This was like 
for lack of a better word, like pounded into your identity as a human being. And then to like break free from that, like for most people, it's something they can't, they can't really fathom that. And so like, I would rather bury my head in the sand and wish this didn't exist than face the shattering of the reality I have pictured in my head. Yeah. And I mean, humans will do anything to avoid suffering, right? Like that's just part of also this experience, right? Is like, well, I just want to keep the family together. I just want to, I don't want, you know, yeah, I don't want her to leave him or I, you know, I, oh, I want the family to have holidays together, but at the expense of, of what, you know, and especially when we're talking child sex abuse, it's like, that is what they put Mm. up as a sacrifice in order to keep status quo. And so these stories not being told is is like, it's so horrifying because it allows this behavior to continue and continue and to be passed down generation to generation. You said something really powerful that I wanted to highlight and use the term child sacrifice. And I think that's a very, very fitting term because that is the cost to trying to maintain appearance and keeping this stuff hidden is more children being harmed. And how could... Like I got a two-year-old and a one-month-old and the thought of somebody harming them, that brings me close to wanting to commit murder. Like I'm a Christian, but I'd be that close to wanting to kill somebody for hurting my children. That's how much I, how strongly I feel about my kids. And so then I take how I feel about those kids and I picture, so then I hear these stories and I picture somebody doing that to my child. I think how, how could I listen to that to hear the cries of the survivors and not be outraged? How could I hear that and not be outraged? How could I claim to be a Christian? And, and not be outraged by this. Because I think what we have learned or been brought up in is a distorted version of it. Um, and this is probably like, I'm like maybe sacrilege for me to say, but like a distorted version of this that has done exactly this, held up this ideal image while there's this, this repugnant underbelly of like children's lives being destroyed. And the other part of it is that it's hard for people to grasp, oh, that happened years ago. And... Oh boy, when I hear that one, I'm like, I, I I would like to smack you. I won't, but I would like to to try to like wake you up to this idea that like that happened years ago. Like, forget about it is one of the most ignorant things you could ever say to a survivor. Well, and you know, I live in New York City, and yesterday was nine eleven, right? And so all of the firehouses mm-hmm. around, there are wreaths. You know, people were mm-hmm. you know in attendance. There were memorials all over the city. It's like. That sort of that sort of grieving and communal loss and suffering that's brought to the forefront on that day every year is exactly what is needed with this church. And it's not happening. It hasn't happened yet. And that's what's so shocking to me is it's like, I'm like, no. I tell people, I'm like, what if the Twin Towers fell? And you just were like, oh, well, you know what? Like, that was years ago. Like, well, okay. <laughs> It still impacts the body, the psyche, and there are people who have lost their lives because of this that we don't even know about, that we will never know those stories. And there are people there are people being harmed today yeah. that are not getting help because they won't be able to come forward. Their bodies will not let them feel safe enough to come forward for years, maybe decades. Mm-hmm. And that to me is like, that's a tragedy is like, if children are not held at the forefront or like in the center of a community, then what good is a community? I just like the, the and I and I know this is probably in reference to a lot. Jesus saying, like, if you hurt one of these, it's better that a millstone is hanged around your neck than what's actually awaiting. And th- that's another part that actually like blows my mind because I'm like, 
you know, as a Christian who tries to follow the, the teachings of Jesus, and I think, but this is what he said about harming children, is that the most desirable outcome for you would be that you were basically drowned in the sea with a millstone around your neck. To try to somehow paint a picture of the gravity of what it means to harm a child, it, it is like the absolute worst thing that could be committed. And so yeah. a community that wants to not like won't even acknowledge it because of their desire to to maintain a certain appearance. And if people find out about this, they're, I'm like, what do you think happens when people find out, not only find out about this, but the fact that you've been covering this up for years? It's it's brutal. Yep. I wanted to to, to get your take on, or, or just get you to share a little bit about the, like the trauma triangle. I, I feel like, again, there's this misunderstanding Mm. Uh, like really blatant ignorance, which should, shouldn't exist at this point. But anyways, there's a blatant ignorance around trauma and how it affects people and how it affects people for, for years to come. If you could share just a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, again, the key, this, the sort of key pieces, and again, this functions very differently. Every, some people stay in the roles forever. Some people switch roles, some people move out of it, but to really break the cycle, you know, you have the, you have the perpetrator, or the abuser, you have the person who's the victim or the abused, and then you also have the enabler or the complicit person. And without those three, if one person removes themselves from that, then you no longer have that functioning, right, of the movement between the three. Mm -hmm. So what I tell people is I'm like, look, if you cannot change the perpetrator, which (laughs) really can't, right? I mean, it's like next to impossible. They're also charming sociopaths, good at grooming. I mean, there's all these layers to it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you keep the focus off of them and you sort of like look at yourself, you're like, well, am I being complicit in the behavior of a perpetrator? Am I allowing them to come to meetings with me? Am I allowing them to be around children at family gatherings because of my own needs and desires? And I don't want to actually sit and wrestle with things. Like, those are ways you can protect the survivors or the potential, the potential survivors even is by removing yourself out of that and not enabling that behavior and those crimes. Mm-hmm. And I love that you shared that in particular, because I think there are people who would like witness the magnitude of this and then just actually basically shut down because the the scale of this is horrifying. Like it's huge. I, I believe, and, and I haven't, fully verify these stats, but it's looking something like about three times as bad per capita as the Catholic church. And and the Catholic church has been held up as like the pariah of religious institutions for, for their enabling and cover-ups for decades and decades. And then we think that we're statistically speaking like three times worse. If that isn't a wake up call to people, I really, I really don't know what is, but so to the person that's feeling overwhelmed and going, what can I do? This is so huge. This is so like beyond me. I just feel so deeply ashamed, so overwhelmed and so on to say to them, you can, you can no longer be complicit. And that's a simple, it's not actually a hard thing to do is to withdraw your support from the system that's enabling this to happen. Absolutely. I mean, you see it all. I mean, you see it throughout history. People have done this and it's worked. It might take decades, right? It might take, it might take centuries, but it is possible. And I think that that's, that's the thing that I just don't quite understand in all of this is it's like, once you know better, do better, right? And no, you maybe can't change the entire thing, but some of these people are smart, educated people that we've talked to and they still don't get it. And I tell people, I'm like, you don't have to have an education to understand that child sex abuse is crime. Like it's pretty black and white. 
not many things in life are, but this is black and white. Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't yeah. know where the disconnect is, but I, again, I come back to this thing. It's like, well, if your salvation is at risk, right. Or you feel that it is at mm-hmm. risk. Mm-hmm. Why would you speak up about things? Right. And, and so it speaks to just this flawed theology or doctrine or dogma, really, actually, that, that somehow harming this institution puts your salvation at risk. And that's the, the tool, because I, I also look at sort of this hierarchical structure that exists. And I look at that and I go from a, like an organizational psychology standpoint, what is it about how this system operates that also enables perpetrators? And I look at how, like those who are, who are sociopaths, it, it, whatever setting, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a criminal organization, whether it's a religious institution, they tend to rise into positions of authority and influence where they're respected. And they know how to behave within the system to look like the ideal individual within that system. And it's that position of power and authority and influence that allows them to abuse and take advantage of that. Because there's so many people that are still thinking like, oh, most of these overseers are good. And so mo- uh, some, some people will know that I've been a pretty vocal critic in particular of what I'm referring to as the overseer class. Um, I look at like f- my first communication, which was very like, I would say kind hearted. Like I, I speak this out of love and I'm, I'm concerned for all of you. I believe most of you are good and so on to the point that I wrote a headline that was like, Lord, be not silent, expose the pedophiles, the rapists and the cowards who enable them. It went from like one to, to the other, because as I started to realize the scope and scale of this problem, I was like, the time for like gentle words is, is long gone. The time for like, a, a, you know, and so I, I wanted to use my voice as best I can to at least say something to not remain silent in the face of this. And so I've been calling out the overseer class in particular, because I, I believe that none of them have a right to even call them th- call themselves that anymore. Because if we look statistically speaking, first of all, a disproportionate number of the ministry have been abusers. And then from there, a disproportionate number are male. And maybe that's statistically significant across society as a whole. And then it's a disproportionate number of men who are in positions of authority again. And so we look at where, where are the majority of these abusers concentrated. And then you have to try to imagine these other ones. We talk about complicity. Somehow they are entirely ignorant that this is taking place. When they've literally like moved these people around instead of deal with the problem. And so, and, and so I imagine because you and the other members of the advocates team here have, have like, you know, you started this hotline, you started operating within this and, and you know, I think like it's, it's like to the shame of the fellowship that there's these people outside of the fellowship who care more about survivors than people inside do that again, like, I want to say it shocks me. It, it kind of doesn't at this point, but it, it really like seriously disappoints me that people inside don't care as much as, as uh, you and Cynthia and uh, Sherry have cared about trying to expose this and fight this. I like, I don't know where this organization goes from here in a sense. And I'm curious what, what your thoughts are as kind of an outside observer watching all this play out. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is complex, right? In so many ways, because it's like, you're looking at people one, it's not an institution of trust. So it's not, it's not suitable, right? So there's actually mm-hmm. no retribution for survivors, which is awful and its own, that's its own problem. Um, the other thing is if, if the yeah. community is not willing to acknowledge and actually retroactively and then moving forward, change all of their policies and systems, 
and hire a third party outside source to keep this hotline going for the next 50 to 100 years or whatever, nothing's going to change. And then also provides support for survivors. It's like, you're just going to have more of the same. It's the repeated cycle over and over and over, which means in order for this community to actually do like get to the place it needs to get, it means that everyone is going to have to actually sort of implode and also get down to, to zero and, and rebuild. Mm-hmm. And that right there is most people don't want to do that work. That's part of this. Is yeah. that they don't want to do this work. Yeah. Which is like, this is like, wow, what have I done? How am I complicit? What perpetrators have I enabled? You know, I was thinking as you were speaking about uh, Eldon Tenniswood, who was an overseer in California, mm-hmm. very beloved by my family, Dan Hilton, another perpetrator, Dallas Linneman. All of these men are pedophiles, right? Overseers, very well-loved workers. It's like, those were the people in my home. And I could go on and on and on. And the other ones knew that my father was a pedophile. So it's like those two things coinciding together, the complicit with the perpetrator actually makes for such a dangerous system. Right. So when we wrote that overseer letter to say like, okay, you guys all need to step down. We knew they weren't going to step down. We're like, of course, they're not going to listen to three women who are not a part of their community. Of course, they're not. However, we wanted to set the precedence that speaking out and up against the powers that be is actually super, super important in changing that dynamic, mm-hmm. changing that power structure, and also waking people up, even if it's for a moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Because there would be those who, who looked at that um, the letter and, and maybe had high hopes, like, oh, wow, yes. And th- there's something else sort of coming down the line. And, and, but you kind of, you, you already knew. And I think like, I would have agreed like, but this, it, like these, because we think about sense of identity and, and these men have been in these positions for years and years and years and worked their whole life to get into these positions and to step down means for them, like all of this gets left behind. And so I, I feel as though this won't happen until they get arrested and, and charged criminally. And the part that kind of frustrates me to some degree is that people will still call them like martyrs. They'll be followed into prison. They'll be followed into prison, or they'll they'll think like, oh, you know, they were sacrificed, or what? I mean, there's just so many. Like, again, it's easier to believe the lie and the delusion, the mass delusion, than to actually accept the harsh reality mm. of the crimes that have been committed inside this community. It's it's deplorable and disgusting. I mean, like working this every day and talking to these survivors and and listening to these stories, like. I mean, I, I don't know. It feels like we've, we've gone to war and then, you know, you, people don't understand, but I'm like, if someone could sit on the hotline for a couple of days, like everyone inside the community, they might wake up, but that's not the survivors shouldn't have to do that. Again, the other part is that survivors shouldn't have to tell their stories repeatedly to Mm -hmm. wake these people up. It's like the data should be enough. Yeah. Like, to, the data should be enough and the, the name should be enough, right? Eldon Tenniswood was yeah. a pedophile. Like, what are you guys thinking? He was the overseer of California for years and mm-hmm. years and years and beloved. Take your photos of him off the wall. Take them yeah. off. Yeah. Right. It, I, I, I think what we just shared there, if, if people could even for an, like four hours sit on the hotline and listen to what people say how it would change their perspective. Like for me, and and part of creating this series is 
you know, maybe some survivors will tell their story that, that are in a place where they're comfortable sharing their story and speaking publicly about it can share their story once and then just refer people back to this or something. Say, there's my story. You can go see it there. You can hear it. You can see my facial expressions. You can hear the tone of my voice and so on. And really like leave, leave an impression. That's why I wanted to try to capture it in these mediums, uh, survivor stories because it's just people it's it's not sinking in because written words seem to be not enough for these people and like I, i'm okay with the whole organization imploding frankly because and, and which then kind of leads me to ask i'm curious what you've kind of been on the receiving end as you've been like in this fight which is a good fight a righteous fight for survivors as an outsider and how has there been blowback, which I'm sure there probably has been. And sort of what has that been like for you on, on the other side of this and, and how, how are people on the inside, especially those in positions of authority treating you? The first thing I would say is that people either are doing a lot of the black and white, like you're amazing. You're saving us. Or the dichotomy of like, oh, you're the devil of the devil. These women are trying to, to ruin the church, blah, 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 right? So you kind of, after a while, I tell people I'm like immune to both the praise and the discourse and the hatred. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like some days it gets you and then other days you're just like, okay, it doesn't, you know, it's just one person's opinion perspective. But the thing that really bothers me the most is like, I was on a call last night for CSA policy changes, right? And a person who was best friends with my parents, my father in particular, he was like, oh, we want all of the survivors to come to us, you know, going forward and we'll disseminate the information. This man is a lawyer. This man is educated. And, you know, here's the problem, right? It's like after six months of observing and witnessing and experiencing this crisis and you're an educated person, this is still your takeaway. Like that to me is disturbing. Mm-hmm. That to me is distortion. And it's like, how are your own children even safe amongst a community? If, if you're not even willing to say like, hey, actually, no, we should not be the ones doing intake. It should be a third party. Like that kind of stuff is what, that's the stuff that makes me upset. I don't care what they say about me. Like, right. you know, my own family has been like, oh, Lauren's batshit. Like, she's just insane. You know, like <laughs> she's like, crazy and working the hotline you know i mean it's like what it, you know she's trying to ruin our church like blah 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 you know the whole nine yards um and condemning members of my family to hell you know what i mean that are supportive of it that are even inside so i mean that's the cost but that cost is nothing compared to like what these children inside are going to go through if people remain the same well it's funny you use the phrase like like what you're doing is condemning people to hell <laughs> i'm like the 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 irony for lack of a better term, the irony is rich because I'm like, have you considered the actions of a child rapist that maybe that's actually what's condemning them to hell? <laughs> like does, does, does not sink in. And I know it is kind of like preaching to the choir here, but I, it's like, I, I just wanted to verbalize it. Like, I'm like, ah, I want it to sink in that these, these predators are not godly men. They're not Christian men or uh, women as well. But it, I mean, it's predominantly men. These predators are not godly. They are not Christian they're criminals and it's their own actions that are condemning them. It is not the voice of somebody on the outside fighting for the wounded bleeding in the ditch that is trying to tear this institution down. Why the blame would fall on your shoulders 
as though you have some kind of vendetta. Again, boggles my mind because the reality is you're fighting for you're, you're fighting for the victim that's. Ble- I mean, I'm saying bleeding in the ditch for those who might not know. It's the reference to the parable of the Good Samaritan, and uh, you're you're fighting for those, and it's like people are angry at the Good Samaritan, and they're not angry at the robbers. They're not angry at the criminals. What will it take for them to finally turn their anger to the criminals and say, you have no place amongst us. You're not welcome in our home. We're not supporting you financially. You've lost all and any authority that you once had because who you really are has been shown. So as we kind of wrap this up, I think, man, there's a lot of questions I'd like to ask, but for the, <laughs> for the sake of, for the sake of time. And, and I want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time as well, because I know like it's busy because you also have like a life outside of this. You used to, used to have a life. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> you used to have a life. I'm like, I wonder if people like stop and remember like, oh, wow, these people are human beings with a life. Like, you know, I, I have two kids. I have a wife. I have a business that I run. Like I have all these other things that I'm trying to do, but I feel like, okay, this is one thing that I can do where I can try to elevate the voices of survivors and those who are advocating fighting for survivors. And if, even then it feels like it's a really tiny thing, but I'm like, this is something that I can do. I can contribute to this. Anything that can lead to increased awareness of what is happening, you know, can, can potentially be uh, a catalyst for, for change. What's the thing that you would like to say to the fence sitters, the ones who have the capacity to maybe change? I think for those, in order to make this work, in order for the community and survivors to get the help that they need, those people sitting on the fence have to get uncomfortable. They're going to have to reckon with all of this and they're going to have to get in, they're going to have to get into the arena. And that's what's, that's what's honestly keeping them back. It's like, there's no personal cost for these people, right? And that's what you see, that apathy. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, it doesn't affect me, right? <laughs> Historically, you can look at all of these things in history. It's like, well, yes, I see the photos, but it doesn't affect me. It has nothing to do with me. And that's really what we're seeing here again is like communally is like, oh, yes. And like, you know, there's no perpetrators in our family. Oh, yes. And like, you know, we don't, you know, our kids, we asked our kids, you know about. Yeah, we asked our kids if, if they were, if they were sexually abused and they said no. And I'm like, well, that doesn't mean that they weren't abused. Like, that's the thing is in order to have these conversations, it's not a one and done deal. It's not like, oh yeah, you take the perpetrator out of meeting. It's like these overseers, these workers, these friends are still saying that, you know, child rapists have the spirit of a lamb. You know, I tell people, I'm like, my father has a garden. My parents bake casseroles for people. Like, that's also the profile of pedophiles, right? Like, it's not, it doesn't appear the way you think Mm -hmm. it does. Like, abuse does not look the way you think it does. So get over that. Survivors are not going to look all the same. They're not all going to be able to articulate or speak the same or sound the same. Like, that is also part of this. And no survivor owes you their story. If anything, the biggest thing that could help is these people that are complicit, which really is the entire community at this point. And I really feel this way. It's like everyone who remains and does nothing is complicit and they have blood on their hands. So do something. Get messy. You know, offend people. You know, get people angry. Stir them up. Like, cause some good trouble. You know, it's like this is what you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Go flip over some tables. Yeah. 
they should be able to get that reference. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lauren, um, really, really appreciate uh, your time today. I appreciate more than that, the, the work that you're doing. And I just want to acknowledge that. I will say this, though, is that it's not about us. Like, it stopped. People have said this, like, oh, maybe it's about your case or Sherry's case. And I tell them, like, it stopped being about us. Yeah. The day the hotline went up. Mm-hmm. This is collectively is like, this is just so there's thousands of stories. Like, it's not about me. It's not about Sherry. It's not about our cases, our stories. It's like, there are thousands of survivors that need help. And each person in the community is responsible to those survivors, where, whether or not they're in the community or not, Mm -hmm. they are responsible. Mm -hmm. They owe them the casseroles and love and envelopes underneath the door and under the pillow and like the gas money. That's who's owed this. Mm -hmm. So do the right thing. I love that. that. That's a great note to finish on. Thank you. Even though we're talking about a hard topic, it's genuinely been a pleasure chatting with you about this. And uh, thank you for being so open with what you shared as well. Yes, of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into The Hidden Truth. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share this episode because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. It is so important these stories are heard so that we continue to raise awareness and support victim survivors on their healing journey. For those who've been affected but haven't found your voice yet, I really hope these stories inspire you to keep moving forward on your healing journey. Thank you.